This is The Red Line, where we interview three key experts on one huge issue shaping the news both here and overseas. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. We will not waver, we will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Today marks the 18th anniversary of the declaration of war on the country of Afghanistan. And in 18 long years of fighting, the coalition forces have lost over 3,500 soldiers, 41 of those being Australians. As we speak, the war seems to be turning against us, with the Taliban getting more and more ground. And after 18 long years of fighting from the mountains of Kunduz to the deserts of Kandahar, what do we have to show for it? Today, we will be talking with three expert witnesses to get a better idea of this country that has swallowed up almost every nation that has attempted to conquer it, as well as taking a look forward into the difficult years ahead. Part 1. Graveyard of Empires Yeah, well, Afghanistan is a landlocked country in Central Asia. It's about the size of France, has a population of about uh, 30, 35 million people. Um, it's highly mountainous in its center, and then on, on its edges, you find plains and, and deserts. Our first guest is Thomas Barfield, a Harvard-educated professor who is now the head of anthropology at Boston University. He's also the author of many books in Afghanistan, including Afghanistan, A Cultural History, and The Central Asian Arabs of Afghanistan. The country is practically 100% Muslim, about uh, 80, 85% Sunni, uh, 15, 20% Shia. Uh, but what we find is that the rural areas, the social values are uh, relatively conservative, particularly when it comes to the roles of women, whereas in the major cities, um, they're much more liberal. And that's been one of the problems in terms of the government. So for some of our listeners who might not know, has Afghanistan been invaded before? Yes, Afghanistan has invaded uh, four times in the past 175 years, um, twice by the British in the 19th century, once by the Soviet Union in the 20th century, and by the United States and its allies in the 21st century. The Russians came in in support of an existing communist government, uh, but their style of counterinsurgency was quite violent. In the 10 years of, of the Soviet war, 1 million Afghans were killed and between 4 and 5 million were uh, made refugees. To fight the Soviets, the US armed and trained thousands of Mujahideen fighters who drew the Soviets into a prolonged counterinsurgency battle, eventually leading to the Soviets pulling their forces out of Afghanistan in 1989. But what happened after they left? Well, well this is uh, a period of time that's often not looked at very closely. There is an assumption that the Russians left and the Taliban came in, and that wasn't really true. One of the most interesting things that happened, which is a little bit relevant for today, is the Soviets withdrew in 1989, and they presumed the Afghan government they left behind would fall to the Mujahideen resistance. It did not. 
Uh, that government lasted until April 1992 and only collapsed after the Soviet Union dissolved. When the Soviet Union no longer was able or didn't exist to send it money and weapons, that regime, communist regime, collapsed. The thing that happened then was not the arrival of the Taliban, but was the arrival, arrival of the various Mujahideen resistance groups. And from 1992 to 1995, they fought among themselves. Um, so in 1995, what we see is the Taliban taking advantage of this anarchy in Afghanistan uh, to begin to seize power in most parts of the country. They eventually take power in Kabul, the western city of Herat, the northern city of Mazar Sharif, but actually they never uh, are able to control the entire country, although they come very close to it uh, on the eve of 9-11-2001. Has it ever been controlled by one central government? Yes, very often. Uh, we, we tend to look upon the period from 1978, but in fact, from essentially 1895 until 1978, Afghanistan was under the control of one government, largely at peace, except for a nine-month civil war in 1929. And from 1929 to 1978, that is 50 years, it was under the control pretty much of a monarchy. The monarchy was overthrown to create a president, but that president was the cousin of the king. Um, for 50 years, you had Afghanistan um, that stayed out of both world wars, had a central government that was very weak, but no insurgency in Afghanistan. By the time 1992 comes around and the Soviet Union is no longer there, no great power is interested in Afghanistan. And if no great power is interested in Afghanistan, then it tends to revert to anarchy. You only get these warlords and civil wars in Afghanistan essentially when uh, the world is not interested in Afghanistan. Because the Afghan government has never financed itself on its own revenue. It's always dependent upon outsiders essentially to pay for government from Kabul. So from 1929 to 1978, Afghanistan was quite stable. Uh, very poor, but quite stable. Uh, I spent two years there in the 1970s, walked all over the country. I never saw a gun, never felt any threat, never saw any government police either but you didn't need them. So after the Soviets left, who was in control of Afghanistan? The factions were small. You maybe, you know, even the Taliban, the Northern Alliance, maybe they had troop levels of about 30,000 each. Um, they weren't doing much in the way of governance. So what you found was Pakistan was supporting the Taliban. Uh, India, Russia, Iran was supporting the Northern Alliance. Um, Al-Qaeda got in there uh, under Osama bin Laden. They were helping fund Mullah Omar and the Taliban. So essentially what it allowed was small players with small pocketbooks to play an inordinate amount of influence in Afghanistan. But at that point, every group could control one region of the country, but no uh, faction was able to take over the, all, the whole country. Uh, until the Taliban. The Taliban came very close doing it because they set themselves up as a regional, uh, sorry, as a religious movement rather than either a sectarian uh, or regional movement. They, they focused on essentially calling a jihad um, to say that they were going to create an Islamic emirate. So, which was the first time, I should say, Afghanistan ever was ruled by clerics in all of its history until the Taliban uh, clerics had never ruled Afghanistan. 
So after George Bush declares war in Afghanistan in response to the 9-11 attacks, what happened? Well, as I say, the first 10 weeks, um, the, there are very few foreign troops on the ground. Uh, there's a lot of American and a little bit of allied air power, but the Taliban doesn't own very much equipment that's destroyed. Um, but fundamentally, the United States funds the Northern Alliance, provides them with weapons, but mostly with money. And when the city of Mazar Sharif in the north, which was held by the Taliban, when that fell, within 48 hours, all of northern and western Afghanistan, with one or two exceptions, defected to the Northern Alliance. And two weeks later, the Taliban withdrew from Kabul. They didn't even defend it, went to Kandahar. And by the time they got to Kandahar, the people of Kandahar had joined the other side. So Mullah Omar had to flee. Fundamentally, what you were looking at was a war that was uh, essentially Western air power, but on the ground, it was the Afghans that did the deals. And in Afghanistan, the perception of power is power itself. Once it looked like the Taliban were losers, nobody wanted to be on the loser's side. So people got rid of their black turbans and put on those round Afghan hats. And everybody could declare that they were part of the victorious side. And how did the Northern Alliance run the government? Now, did people resent the Taliban being kicked out of power? No, they simply, the Taliban were widely hated. Um, they hadn't provided uh, very good government. Uh, they've been close to a famine in a couple parts of Afghanistan. Uh, but fundamentally, um, it wasn't a... It, even the Northern Alliance, when it took over, it did not take the city of Kabul and create a new government. It allowed the UN in Bonn, Germany, to create the government and send Karzai as the provisional leader, which is quite interesting. In other words, they seized power, but they actually outsourced the governance. The Afghans in the first few years actually put it together pretty well, given that the central government didn't have very much power. Um, and the first election uh, that occurred 2005 when Karzai was elected, first election in Afghanistan that had ever chosen a leader, first time in history. So Hamid Karzai was not a member of the Northern Alliance. He's a Pashtun. He had even worked for the Taliban a little bit for a short period of time. But um, uh, what we found was the Northern Alliance was, it was an alliance and it was very practical. So it allowed for a diplomatic solution to create the provisional government in Afghanistan. When in 2003 the US and its allies declared war in Iraq, did this affect the war in Afghanistan? When the United States went into Afghanistan, it had the full backing of the international community and a lot of sympathy. It lost that sympathy when it went into Iraq. So while NATO allies continued their help in Afghanistan, it was no longer so positive. The Bush administration had squandered, uh, if you will, the political capital that it had in terms of world opinion. Um, by entering into Iraq. And so this also made it more difficult to get allies to help in Afghanistan. We didn't give very much money for the reconstruction of Afghanistan given the level of its problems, but actually the government, the United States government, actually told the embassy to reduce costs in Afghanistan because they needed the money for Iraq. Um, but also they weren't interested in it. Uh, I spoke to Afghans in 2002 when the talk of invading Iraq was, was pretty high. And their concern was not whether it was legitimate or not, but they said, this will take all the air out of Afghanistan, which it did. With Obama coming into power in 2008, did that change the US strategy in Afghanistan? Well, there's a political shift. Obama had run sort of with Iraq bad war, Bush's war, 
and Afghanistan good war, something that we, the United States should continue to support. The difficulty was once he got into Afghanistan, well, what do you do about it? Uh, at the beginning, the military convinced him what you need to rectify the situation because the insurgency had grown, um, essentially because there weren't from any foreign troops in Afghanistan. The Afghan government's army was not very powerful. The Afghan government was incompetent. Um, so there was an argument, let's have a surge of troops to fix the situation. Um, so since Obama had declared Afghanistan to be important to the United States, he signed on to that. But sort of unwillingly in the sense that he said he'd send them over, but he was going to pull them out within two years. Uh, the Taliban can read and listen to the radio like anybody else. So their feeling was, all right, if we survive two years, um, these guys will go. So it was a surge. It did restore uh, government control, like in the Helmand, in, uh, in Kandahar, places in the south. But one of the great difficulties, which was noted at the time, was it's very difficult to do a counterinsurgency campaign if you don't have a good partner government. And the embassy in Kabul and others said the Karzai regime is fairly corrupt, it's incompetent, and it's more importantly, it's unpopular in the places that the troops were going. Therefore, um, how could you conduct a successful counterinsurgency campaign, number one, on such a limited time frame, but number two, with an Afghan government that when the U.S. reinstalled it locally, what you discovered was, yeah, the local people were happy to see the Taliban gone, but they were unhappy to see the arrival of Kabul government officials. So this this put the United States sort of on a horns of under dilemma. The locals didn't want to see the Taliban, which we thought was good, but they didn't want to see the Kabul government, which we were supposedly fighting to support. And how did the locals view the new president, Hamid Karzai? Uh, he was a, at the beginning. He was fairly popular, um, but as trouble went on, he began to be perceived, and to some extent, perceived himself. Afghanistan never lost its sovereignty, unlike Iraq. So, in theory, the president of Afghanistan could have told the foreigners how to conduct the war, what to do. But in fact, Karzai was a weak personality. He never did that. He sort of knew that he owed his continued presence in Afghanistan to the foreign forces. At the same time, for domestic uh, consumption, uh, he attacked the foreign forces. So the Afghans kind of looked at this as, well, either do something about it um, or, you know, get on one side or the other. So he alienated both a lot of the Afghan people and uh, alienated his foreign backers. Jumping forward to today, with the U.S. in talks to pull out of the country, do you think the Taliban will take over the governing once the U.S. leaves? No, the Taliban is unlikely to be running the government when the U.S. leaves. That's another... Remember, I, I mentioned that Afghanistan had been invaded four times. In the past three, no Afghan insurgency has ever been able to topple a government that continues to maintain weapons and money from its international patron. It's what I call the insurgent's dilemma. It's easier to get rid of foreigners than it is to topple Afghan governments. When, when you get into an Afghan civil war situation, when the foreigners leave, then sort of money in the bank is more important than boots on the ground. It becomes a battle of patronage. So even if the U.S. leaves, as long as it continues to pay for an Afghan army, provides it with money, how are the Taliban supposed coming out of the rural areas, how are they supposed to gear up and create a conventional army that can take cities? 
because even if the U.S. only left drones behind, as soon as the Taliban organized in battalion-sized groups, they would be bombed from the air. This is their dilemma. As soon as they get big enough to attack someplace, they can be destroyed. So they can hold as many mountains and deserts as they want. The Mujahideen did the same thing against the communist government, uh, but they find themselves unable to take the population centers. So that's where the Taliban have, have difficulty. You cannot be a government unless you can take the cities and the irrigated areas. I mean, you know, that's where the economic heart of Afghanistan is. So how did the Taliban manage to do that? They only managed to do that in the mid-1990s because there was a government collapse. There was no government. It was total anarchy. In periods of anarchy, sort of the one-eyed man is king in the land of the blind. But uh, the Taliban can only really hope to take power if the Afghan government essentially first collapses uh, out of because it's not supported or out of its own incompetence. It's even if the Af the Afghan army, which is probably predominantly people from the north, from the west, it's non-Pashtuns, that army, if there's an upcoming civil war, is likely to throw its weight behind a reconstituted northern alliance. That makes it very difficult if we go back to a civil war for the Taliban to make a whole lot of progress. Maybe they can control Helmand, maybe they can control Kandahar, maybe they can control part of the Pakistan border. But how do you get beyond that? Part two, balancing act. When I went to Afghanistan, it was, what I saw was 30 years, or the remnants of 30 years of destruction, of war, of poverty, um, and it was kind of slowly re-emerging. Our second guest is Samaya Sayed, an Afghan-Australian who worked as an advisor in the Justice Sector Support Program for the US State Department. The Afghanistan that I grew up hearing about was the Afghanistan that was, you know, um, very different to the Afghanistan that is today. And like I said, it's very unfair to compare the two. The Afghanistan that I heard about growing up was, you know, people were at peace, people were calm, um, they were happy, they were settled, life was much better, obviously. You know, people hadn't witnessed war the way they have witnessed war today. Um, you know, I was working with an Afghan colleague at one point and he was telling me how the day the Taliban left or the day the Taliban fell, that was a day his father, his, for the first time in his life, he saw his father shaving his beard and he's like, I was so amazed by that. So from your travels uh, all around Afghanistan, Culturally, how would someone from, let's say, Helmand or Farah compare to, let's say, Kabul? So you go to East Afghanistan, it's completely different to Kabul. Um, you know, you've got the tribal areas, you've got the rural areas, you've got just the, the kind of the mix of the different people in different regions really stands out. And you really feel the difference as you travel to the different areas. Um, the Kabul that it is today is a cosmopolitan of all these people who have come from all different areas in Afghanistan. And it's kind of, there's a mix of people because it's a capital and that's where, you know, there are jobs there, there's um, people come there for, you know, education, for whatever the reason is, they come to Kabul for that. Um, so it's, yeah, it's very hard to kind of highlight it. But in saying that, when you go to an area like in Helmand, for example, or East, or let's just say um, Jalalabad or... Um, you know, one of those eastern provinces, you do see the difference. The 
in the remote areas, people are very traditional. They're very conservative. It's very minimal. It's very basic. Um, you know, they're extremely hospitable, charitable people, and they live by that code of conduct, by the code of conduct that Afghans hold themselves accountable to, if that makes sense. And they, you know, they ensure that they follow that and they, you know, and they do that with pride. So you were in Afghanistan in uh, 2009 when President Obama comes into office, which is a dramatic shift in doctrines from the Bush administration. You know, what was that like on the ground for people living there? Were people noticing the difference in doctrine or, you know, was it just a continuation of the old ways? When Obama came in, he introduced more drone. There were more drone attacks. Um, and I guess the biggest concern at that time, the highlight were, you know, conducting raids in rural areas or in remote areas or, you know, especially in conservative areas where they would kind of conduct um, ground operations and they would go into homes of, you know, Afghans. And there was definitely much more attention and more focus on building the justice sector in Afghanistan. Um, and that included, you know, um, the Attorney General's Office, Ministry of Justice, um, the prosecutors um, throughout Afghanistan and kind of building them up to be able to, you know, to be able to take on Afghanistan as, as we know it today. And how is this doctrine playing out today? Right now, you know, there's no security. You know, we, we're concerned, you know, everyone is kind of like pushing us, send your daughters to school, you know, fight for women's rights. But at the same time, there's no security to, to provide that kind of safe environment for men and women to go and, and be able to pursue their careers or their, you know, Unfortunately, it is a male-dominated country, so the men actually have it easier than the women. Whereas for the women, it needs to, you know, people need to step up and they're kind of like, well, we don't have that security, we don't have that protection, so there is no way that we can send our daughters out to study or, you know, to go to school or whatever it is because on the way, we don't know if they're going to come home again. You know, so with security comes all those other progressive factors. Well, speaking on that subject, Reading the reports coming out from Afghanistan at the moment, uh, the Taliban are gaining more and more ground every day. I mean, some of the estimates I've read are saying that about two thirds of the country is either disputed or under direct control of the Taliban. You know, why do you think they're gaining so much ground? Are they doing hearts and minds better than us or is it just brute force? You know, how are they gaining so much ground compared to the allied forces? I think it's not them doing hearts and minds better. I think it's people losing confidence in the Afghan government and they have done so since the Ghani government was elected. So I think it, it goes back to the, con, you know, I mean, how confident the people are in the government and if they're not, history has shown that they tend to sway to the other side. Um, what is, I think the key question we need to ask is what is the Taliban bringing to the table that the Afghan government is not? And I think when I was there, for example, the one thing people would say is, look, we didn't uh, you know, the one thing Taliban brought to the country was stability, uh, sorry, security. Um, you know, we felt safer in that sense. Security is a number one concern in Afghanistan. I think if you have security, everything else comes into place. Well, looking forward now, there was peace talks coming up between the US and the Taliban and the CIA in both press conferences and on Twitter seems to be indicating that they would support another a Northern Alliance type group. Uh, do you think this is the best way forward? I think, I mean, going back to what you were saying earlier on, I mean, the fact that they're even, you know, um, engaging with the Northern Alliance. I mean, the Northern Alliance, for example, is, 
I mean, are we recognizing the Northern Alliance and not recognizing the other groups? I think that's going to create huge issues for Afghanistan. Um, and it's going to create that ethnic divide all over again. And yes, it will go back into a civil war. I think that's what everyone is concerned about. And like I said, the warlords from the Soviet post-Soviet era are still very effective today. They're still around. They hold great positions and great posts and um, they're influential within their groups. And that's what's really concerning is that, that will, it will fall back into that situation or into that state as it had before. Part three, you have the watches, but we have the time. You know, I, I still recall my very first uh, journey to Afghanistan. Uh, I've been traveling to Uzbekistan and Tajikistan uh, to the north and even to Pakistan and India, but I'd never actually gone uh, into the graveyard of empires. Uh, so I recall flying over these mountains and landing in Kabul. And the first thing I noticed was old Soviet uh, MiG-21 jet fighters uh, on the runway that had been blown up by the rebels and, and rusting Soviet tanks. Uh, and you get out of the airport and the first thing I saw was nomads on the side of the, uh, of the road. Kuchi Pashtu nomads with uh, camels and, and donkeys. So you know, it's very evocative, and I must say, almost like a National Geographic or Indiana Jones moment, arriving there in that, that city that I read so much about. Professor Brian Glenn Williams is the Professor of Islamic History at the University of Massachusetts in Dartmouth. He works for the US Army and the CIA's Counterterrorism Center in Afghanistan. He's also the author of Counter Jihad, the American military experience in Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria, as well as The Last Warlord. Brian is one of the NSA's and CIA's biggest experts when it comes to Afghanistan. I got there actually about uh, two, two, two years after the invasion, uh, and it was a period when, when uh, there's a lot of hope in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, uh, Afghans uh, were excited that the roads were being built, uh, that women could go out to, to stores and have their, their hair done. Uh, they built a couple uh, skyscrapers in downtown Kabul. Uh, a million people came back to the capital, and, and, and the Americans had the wind behind them. Uh, NATO had the wind behind them. You know, we crushed the Taliban in these battles back in October and November of 2001 when we toppled the Taliban regime. And Afghans live in a dangerous neighborhood, and they all put their finger to the wind to find out who's strongest, and that's who they join. And there was a sense that we were the ones to be joined uh, back in 02, 03, and 04. The Taliban had been crushed, they'd fled to uh, tribal regions in neighboring Pakistan, and I sensed something optimistic in Afghanistan. But sadly, of course, uh, the Bush administration took its eye off the ball. Uh, they didn't fully develop Afghanistan, they didn't give it the resources it needed to rebuild, and instead the Bush administration diverted the war on the down but far from Mount Taliban and Al-Qaeda to a different country called Iraq. They launched Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003 and this diverted all the resources, all the oxygen from the war in Afghanistan, which is far from finished, to a country that had nothing to do with 9-11, secular, socialist, Baathist Iraq. Well, since you're an expert in this subject, let's take it right back to some of the reasons we went into Afghanistan in the first place. I mean, we're always told that it was a giant training ground for terrorists who would go on to fight in Russia and the West. I mean, is this an accurate picture? There's some truth and some myths. Um, I myself studied uh, uh, the role of Afghanistan during the Taliban period, the late 90s, being used as a springboard for exporting terrorism. 
Uh, for example, Uzbeks from the neighboring country of Uzbekistan came down to northern Afghanistan uh, to Kunduz, and there they trained to do cross-border raids, jihad raids, holy war against the secular dictatorship of the President Islam Karimov in Uzbekistan, and also in the neighboring country of Tajikistan, uh, and also uh, Pakistani jihadi groups, uh, such as Lashkar Toiba, uh, who were trained to fight jihading in the mountains of Kashmir in India, also came and trained in Taliban Afghanistan in the 90s to wage war against Indians up in the mountains. Well, some of the training camps were being funded by the Pakistani CIA, known as the ISI. Uh, they were funding a Pakistani jihad groups to go fight against Indian occupation in the province of Kashmir. Others were funded by Osama bin Laden. Uh, he funded camps down in places like uh, Farooq or Tarnak Farms, which are down in the southeastern Pashtun territories near Pakistan. There are also independent uh, jihad groups, uh, such as Jundal Sham, the army of Syria, in western Afghanistan, in Herat, run by a separate group uh, by leader named uh, Zarqawi. Zarqawi, by the way, later migrated from US-occupied Afghanistan to Iraq, and there he jihadified Iraq during the US occupation and turned the country into a quagmire for Americans. So fast forwarding again to today. Is this the same flavor of Taliban we saw during the Civil War? Or, you know, what is the situation looking like today? Uh, so about 2013, uh, the US troops began withdrawing 2014 and a shift from Operation Inherent Resolve to Operation Resolute Support. Uh, in this stage, uh, US troops are now supposed to help Afghan National Army forces and Afghan National Police uh, protect their own country, help them with uh, air artillery, you know, uh, drones, uh, airstrikes, etc., help them with uh, air transport, helicopters. But we're leaving the fighting to them now. And the fighting has been hellacious. Uh, Afghan troops are losing hundreds of soldiers per week against the Taliban army that are very dedicated. You know, they're, they're fanatically uh, driven to wage jihad to expel the so-called infidel puppet government uh, of the new president, uh, President Ghani, and uh, to push out Western influence and reinforce uh, Sharia Islamic law, and of course put their ethnic group. Remember, the Taliban come almost exclusively from the, the dominant Afghan group or, or the dominant Pashtun group, and they want to crush these other groups and crush this infidel democracy uh, in Kabul, and of course, force women back into the burqa, the, the, the veil, uh, and, and ban Western education, uh, stone people for moral crimes, and bring back all the dark age punishment of that time warp that they ruled, that, that prison camp that the Taliban ruled from say 95 up until its overthrow in uh, 2001. A lot of this is starting to sound very familiar to our final years of uh, being inside Vietnam. Uh, do you think there are some similarities there? Yeah, you know, I think it's a very apt comparison, Michael. You know, um, you know, in Vietnam, we had an unpopular regime uh, with an army that was corrupt, a government that was corrupt, and God knows that the Afghan government is tremendously corrupt. And in my experiences traveling through this land, you know, interviewing Taliban prisoners of war, uh, interviewing Afghan army officials, uh, Afghan intelligence officials, I began to realize that the Taliban have more heart, more dedication to the struggle than the Afghan soldiers. You know, I'm, I'm arriving at Afghan army checkpoints and seeing them all stoned on hash uh, or are demanding bribes from me. Uh, I hear stories from villagers in the southeast of uh, these Afghan army police coming in and stealing chickens and stealing goats and, and, and sheep. Uh, so, you know, uh, we are supporting a corrupt government with an army that doesn't have as much fire in the war as the Taliban do. You know, and the Taliban are dedicated forever warriors. You know, they see this as a battle of the faith, uh, a, a transgenerational war to expel uh, the infidels. 
they see this just as the as the Mujahideen, uh, the Holy Warriors did when they tried fighting against the Soviets and expelled them, uh, ultimately under Massoud, the Lion of Panjir in the 80s. Uh, so you know, I, I see a lot of parallels to us trying to support this unpopular regime uh, in Saigon, in uh, Vietnam, in the 60s and 70s, to our current struggle to try buttressing a regime that doesn't have as much fervor for the war and a dedication and popularity in many ways as Taliban do, who come from a very conservative uh, uh, rural background area, where they actually have positive support amongst their own people. With Trump now in power, what effect is that having on the war? I mean, how does the Trump doctrine compare to the Obama one? Well, you know, I'm not even sure if, if Trump has something as Kuwait as his own doctrine. You know, I think whatever Trump feels like when he wakes up in the morning, he has his, has his spontaneous decision. So there is no overarching plan. You know, the Obama doctrine called for using uh, local proxies, surrogates, to fight our warfare. Uh, Obama fought against the Taliban uh, and Al-Qaeda who were hiding out in the neighboring wild tribal provinces of Pakistan. Uh, I wrote a book called Predators, the CIA's drone war on Al-Qaeda, where I traveled in those tribal zones. And Obama waged counterterrorism with these massive CIA predator and reaper drones that launched Hellfire missiles into these Taliban and Al-Qaeda hideouts and decimated and wiped out Al-Qaeda. And there, there is no more real Al-Qaeda central anymore. Uh, when was the last time you heard of an actual mass casualty 9-11 style Al-Qaeda attack? That group has been uh, eviscerated due to this withering blitz of drone strikes launched in 08, 9, 10, 11 by President Obama. Obama waged this kind of warfare to overthrow uh, the Shabaab, a, a Taliban style militia uh, in Somalia, or to destroy Al-Qaeda in Yemen, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, in Yemen. Uh, so that was the Obama doctrine. Uh, the Bush doctrine was more about you know big wars, you know, division-sized wars like invading uh, Iraq to destroy terrorist sanctuaries and those who support them. Uh, Trump has no you know cohesive overall plan. You know, he, he, one day he's supporting the Syrian Kurds uh, who are destroying ISIS remnants in Syria. Next day he wakes up and abandons them to their arch enemy, the Islamist Erdogan government in Turkey and to ISIS and Iran. Uh, so he, 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 he's based on whims. Now, he initially came to power and wanted to come off as seen as being strong. So he took the number of troops uh, in Afghanistan from 7,000 to 14,000, ultimately 15,000. Uh, but he's not into foreign wars. He doesn't see them as worthy of US funding. Uh, he's kind of myopic in that sense and doesn't care about the world. Uh, so he, he recently decided to, to half the number of troops uh, in Afghanistan. And it's talking about uh, having these peace talks. You know, these, these this quixotic attempt to bring the Taliban to Washington, DC, and his personal meeting he arranged just last week to try ending the war on his watch and perhaps earning the Nobel Peace Prize. I think that's his ultimate goal was to win the Nobel Prize. And, um, you know, it failed, of course, it, it fell apart. Uh, so, you know, I can't understand Trump's overall plans for Afghanistan. I don't think anybody can. You know, he blindsided the Afghan government the other day by saying he could nuke Afghanistan. He killed 10 million people. Uh, they're, they're, it caused fury in Afghanistan to be that unhinged. Uh, talking about how he, could kill, he could win the war by killing 10 million people. Uh, so who knows what Trump's going to do on any given day? You know, Tuesday Trump could overrule Thursday Trump. And these peace talks that were recently canceled, why did they fail? Well, officially they broke down, uh, as what Trump says, because uh, the Taliban launched a, a deadly uh, attack, a uh, suicide bombing attack uh, in Afghanistan that killed one U.S. soldier and several civilians. Uh, I think this gave uh, Trump a pretext to withdraw uh, from a, a, a rather rushed uh, ad hoc attempt to solve 18 years of war and win him the Nobel Prize. You know, it was ill-conceived to begin with. And I think members of the CIA were against it. The Afghan government was against it. 
uh, the U.S. Pentagon, the Pentagon was against it. His own National Security Council and, and people like his National Security Advisor John Bolton, who was just fired, were all against it. So I think there's a lot of, of pushback against this this personal unilateral attempt to gain glory, uh, and that's why it ultimately failed. And who's funding the Taliban at the moment? I mean, where are they getting their weapons and money from? You know, the funding comes from uh, zakat, uh, attacks on local farmers on, on their crops, uh, including uh, growing opium. Uh, Afghanistan's number one uh, export is actually opium, uh, cotton, wheat, etc. Uh, they also get funding from uh, Arab uh, sort of um, charities in the Saudi Gulf, you know, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. Uh, and over the years, the Pakistanis, uh, the Pakistan CIA, uh, the ISI, Inter-Services Intelligence, has also funded them. Uh, and, and certainly they, they, they make their own money uh, uh, by selling uh, refined uh, opium uh, in Pakistan and abroad. Uh, so you know, they have their own source of funds that come from taxation, uh, from collections from supported Arab states. You know, the, the Wahhabi fundamentalists in Saudi Arabia are very keen to see this jihad uh, succeed. Our, our frenemies, the, the Saudis, over the years have, have funded jihad across the globe. Uh, use their petrol dollars to fund jihad from, from you know the Philippines to, to Mali uh, to Sinai, and certainly they get a lot of zakat money, uh, uh, tithe money, uh, from the mosques to fund the Taliban uh, since the 1990s. The Taliban are gaining ground quickly. In fact, some of the sources in Afghanistan I have are reporting that they aren't even buying ammunition anymore because they're overrunning and capturing so many of the ANA stockpiles. Why do you think this is happening, and what do you think will happen next? You know, in part because uh, the, the Afghan government can't sustain its tremendous casualties. You know, uh, it's a hard thing to constantly send young people to go out and fight and die against fellow Afghans. Uh, so the Afghan government's army doesn't have quite the fighting spirit and heart that the Taliban do. Uh, I myself traveled extensively over Afghanistan, you know, a little Corolla uh, with Shawar Kamiz Roban and I grew my beard along and I traveled all over the country from, from the Tajikistan border to the Turkmenistan border to the Pakistani border to the Iranian border back in, in the window of opportunity. Uh, 03 and 05. Uh, zones I traveled in back then, uh, suddenly when I was working with the CIA, I couldn't travel anymore uh, because they're red zones. More and more of the country was falling as I was going there in summers and seeing these zones in the southeast in particular being gobbled up and absorbed by the Taliban piecemeal, slowly, year by year, more and more ground was lost. More and more girls' schools were burnt. More and more governors were killed. More and more police stations blown up. Uh, more and more defections from this weak uh, uh, the desertion plagued uh, Afghan army. And as of about 2019, the Taliban controlled de facto about 50% of the country. Uh, I was on the phone with the Afghan vice president, uh, General Belstum, you know, from the book, The Last Warlord, uh, just three days ago. And, and they're alarmed at, at Trump's decision to withdraw troops. Uh, they see American war fatigue, uh, potentially leading to a, a pullout of all troops one day. And their army themselves are preparing for another round of Game of Thrones style civil war, which will put uh, moderate Pashtuns uh, we supported those who banked on American support and believed in our, our, our vision of democracy and a liberal uh, vision of the world. And these northern tribes who've always hated the conservative ethnic Pashtuns from the southeast, the dominant race. Uh, these tribes, of course, are the Persian Tajiks in the northeast, uh, Dostum's uh, horse-fighting Uzbek tough warriors in the north, and the Hazara Shiite Mongols way up in the mountains. These three groups, I believe, will wage civil war uh, alongside moderate Pashtuns against this conservative force that wants to conquer them all and reinforce Sharia law and dominate them on the basis of, 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 of Pashtun ethnicity. Uh, so should we ever withdraw troops, which could happen under this president, that's the future I predict for the country.
But where do you see it going if nothing changes, if everything just continues with the status quo? So I see a sort of stalemate at the moment. The Taliban can't take the cities, and we and the Afghan government and the Afghan National Police and the Pentagon can't take the countryside in the southeast. So I think we'll have a, a long-term stalemate, a forever war, because the Taliban will never back down. You know, I remember interviewing these Taliban prisoners of war uh, held in this giant prison up in the north in Shibrigan uh, by General Dostum. And they were dedicated as ever. You know, they're, they're dying in this prison and it's sweltering heat, thousands of them, but yet they were unrepentant. Uh, and one Taliban always, uh, in my mind, always said to me, you Americans have the watches, but we have the time. Allah is on our side. This is a forever war for them, a holy war, a transgenerational war by people who, by the way, never saw video, TV, of the planes hitting World Trade Centers. They know, have no idea about 9-11. To them, we, the Americans, are just like the Soviets. Uh, they have no conception of the justness, the righteousness of us being in our land to stop our citizens from dying in Af Afghanistan-based terror attacks launched by their, their allies, Al-Qaeda. Going forward, if the decision was completely yours, what would you recommend the U.S. forces do in the future? You know, would you recommend they stay or go, or what would be your recommendation? My recommendation would be to, to continue. You know, we can keep the Taliban out of the cities and much of the northern areas where there are, you know, a lot of support for American ideals and democracy. We can maintain this government that we have invested so much blood and treasure in. You know, two thousand. Uh, some Amer 400 Americans have died there, a thousand other NATO troops have died there, tens of thousands of Afghans have died there. Many of them fought for the belief in democracy, you know, in women's rights, uh, in a civil society we don't have Sharia law. Many of them fought for their own ethnic group. You know, 50% of Afghanistan are women. You know, they, they don't want to be on the Taliban. And the majority of the country are non-Pashtuns. You know, I'm referring here to uh, the groups like the Uzbeks, the Tajiks, uh, the Zaras, you know, the, the Uzbeks make up maybe 10% of the country, uh, uh, Hazaras 10%, uh, Tajiks 25%, and the ruling Pashtuns, uh, the Afghans, that is, Aryans, only about 40% of the country. And amongst them, the Taliban are a minority. Uh, so when I hear people say, you know, why, why, why are we there? The Afghans want us to go home, or the Afghanis, you know, I hate that word, it's, it's currency, uh, as if there's one homogenous ethnic group who are all united in their contempt of America and don't want us there. I tell them, well, tell us the women, 50% of the country, tell us the minorities. The Shiites who've been enslaved and slaughtered by the Taliban. Uh, tell it to the, the, you know, the, the Uzbeks who waged war and died in the hundreds to free their country and free their women from these, these hordes of Pashtun Taliban, ethnic Aryans from the south. Tell all these people, oh, we're withdrawing so you can have your country back. You know, it's simplistic and almost anti-American in some sense to say, oh, America created this war. We should abandon them. Let, 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 let the Afghans, quote unquote, as if it's one homogenous nation like the French, let them have the war. I think we can save the women in Afghanistan, save those, school, those schools, save the girls who want to have a secular education, uh, and young men, save democracy, including women in parliament, uh, save all those news channels, the free media, uh, save people who don't want to have Sharia law executions in downtown Kabul simply by having a small footprint. This is not a big war. And we can keep 7,000 troops there indefinitely. You know, we have much more amount of troops than, say, North Korea. Uh, keep them in Afghanistan, save the democracy, uh, save those ethnic groups, save the women, and most importantly, prevent an enemy that is terroristic, uh, that wages war by, by, by beheadings, by IEDs, and by suicide bombings which kill thousands of Afghan and Pakistani civilians. Save that country from being conquered by these misogynists, these, these warriors in the Dark Ages who are attached at the hip to Al-Qaeda. 
Afghanistan seems to be turning against us and could eventually become this generation's Vietnam. We are now in a perpetual catch-22. If we leave, it will quickly get worse, and all of the experts agree it will likely break into another horrifying, bloody civil war, creating problems not only in Afghanistan, but also in the surrounding regions. If we stay, though, ANA and NATO troops will continue to die, and slowly but surely, the Taliban will continue to gain ground in the rural areas. It's a war with no real end in sight, that historically dealt a similar outcome to the Soviets, the British, and the Mughals. There is no easy answer here. Hopefully the results of the recent Afghanistan elections can bring some stability, but most experts here today agree, and they don't hold much hope for that. We can only hope we aren't having the same debate in another 18 years' time. A huge thank you to all of our guests here today. Uh, you can follow Thomas Barfield's work on Amazon, and I highly recommend you check out his book, Afghanistan, A Cultural and Political History. I found it an amazing read and was the basis for a lot of the research on this episode. I also recommend checking out Brian's fantastic library of work, one of which was even adapted into a movie starring Chris Hemsworth. His book, The Last Warlord, is one of Amazon's bestsellers on the subject, and we are sure we will have Brian back on the show at some point. You can also follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Glenn Williams uh, to stay up to date with what he's up to. If you like today's show, please feel free to share it around and tell your friends. We want to bring you the biggest guests we possibly can, and the more listeners we get, the more likely we are to get big names to come onto the program. The other way you can support the show is through Patreon. Uh, this show is completely self-funded, and this allows us to go after stories that corporate media wouldn't be allowed to. Every dollar you donate goes towards paying our fantastic crew, hiring more people, and getting the show to as many people as we can. There are plenty of rewards on Patreon, and it would mean the world to us for you to be a part of the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at the Red Line Oz and Facebook at the Red Line Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back in a fortnight with another international episode. And as they say in Afghanistan, Khuda Hafiz.